escaping, David. Dave, are you in the fridge again? Get out of the fridge. David. Alrighty, what is going on everybody? I'm David Wells and this is the David Wells Experiment. So, as some of you might have guessed, I'm a geek or a nerd or whatever have you. Some might call me an eccentric or just merely creative. But anyway, we're going to do something very geek-like. We're going to talk about Star Wars today. So, one of the things I remember a couple years ago when the whole sequel trilogy was happening... Um, two people were talking about it, and they had differing opinions. One of them liked The Last Jedi, and one of them didn't. And I really didn't like the argument of the one who said that she liked it. She's like, well, they made this movie for everybody, not just Star Wars fans. And to me, I'm like, well, the reason Star Wars was popular in the first place was because it was made for everybody. So, I mean... It felt dismissive of, like, the issues the dude had with this movie. And it just felt not very well thought out. Now, one of the things that this video isn't... Or not video. I'm way too used to being on YouTube. Podcast. One of the things this podcast is not going to do is a... It's not going to be a... I don't know, what would you call it? A bash or a diss or anything. But it is going to bring up some relevant points to Star Wars. So one of the things I feel like is. You know there's healthy fandom and then there's toxic fandom. And oftentimes. I feel like people who have a point of contention. Are. Or if they have issues that they take with the direction Star Wars is heading in, they're automatically lumped in as like, oh, they're toxic. Now, toxic Star Wars fans do exist. But I feel like if you bring up a point where you're like, I'm not so sure about this, then people are like, you almost always seem to get lumped in with the people who express their vitriol in the most unhealthy ways. So I'm going to address that. I'm also going to talk about Obi-Wan, which as of this podcast, I don't think has come out yet. But I don't really stay up to date on all the latest and greatest stuff. So one of the things I've noticed about Obi-Wan, I'm looking into it is um, in this, it takes place 10 years after um, Revenge of the Sith. And the synopsis read that Obi-Wan had lost his faith. He was disenfranchised with everything that was going on. He kind of lost his way. And to me, that sounded so much like what they were going for with The Last Jedi. But people took issue with how they depicted Luke having that same journey. So... I'm going to defend Star Wars fans that take issue with changes and stuff. So let's start off with the prequel trilogy. Now definitely there were some peop 
there were people who were very unkind to some of the actors in that movie. Um, Jake Lloyd, the dude was a kid. And, like, the guy who played Jar Jar Binks, uh, I'm terribly sorry for not remembering his name. That dude, like, he had suicide issues from that. Now, a healthy criticism can be something like, I'm not really sure what the inclusion of Jar Jar Binks contributed to the progression of the story. How did he function? Or did we need to have a character like this? Do they fit in with the overall aesthetic of Star Wars? That's a perfectly valid criticism. But saying things like, this guy should die and stuff, not cool. It's Now, there were other people who were like, I just don't like it. And so one of the things people have said is like, I think the most public example I've seen of somebody just going after Star Wars fans for having a disagreement with how things were handled was Freddie Prince Jr. He said, you're just mad that the show that you grew up and the show didn't and it's not what you remember as a kid. It was made... Star Wars was made for kids. You know, George Lucas said so himself. And I've had direct talks with it. So, you know, grow up. It's not made for you. So there is a valid point. George Lucas did make it to appeal to kids. But I feel it was that thing that Walt Disney said where he said, I don't make movies for kids. I make movies for the kids inside all of us. I really think that's what George Lucas really meant. Because he did make it from a point of nostalgia for the sci-fi properties that he grew up with. And the adventure series. So, I kind of feel like Freddie Prince Jr. was maybe a little bit disingenuous with that assessment. But at the same time, you know, he's a public figure. So, probably the only comments he receives are negative Now, I will say this. I do think there was, for the longest time, it was Star Wars fans who kept the property alive. Because it may not seem like it now, but there was a long stretch between 1983 and 1999 where there was no Star Wars movies happening. I mean, that's a long stretch. That... That's 16 years. I know it seems longer ago, but, well, it is. But, yeah, how did... Now, you have to wonder, how was the sequel, or the prequel trilogy, how was the prequel trilogy able to come back in such a strong force? Wow, I just realized I said force. <laughs> anyway, I'll, because the memory of it was kept alive. And how was it kept alive? Because in those intermediary years, there was a lot of Star Wars stuff made, a lot of, you know, tie-in novels and merchandise that a lot of the Star Wars fans, you know, they kept the franchise moving when there were no movies to speak of. 
So, of course, they felt like they had some sort of ownership over it. And now here's one thing that the the sort of, I guess you could say, oppositionists and the toxic fans have in common. They did invest in this thing to keep it alive. And finally, they were getting more movies. But when they saw stuff in it they didn't like, they kind of felt they were betrayed. Like, man, we give all this love and support and this is like the payback we get. Now the oppositionists, the ones who handled things healthily, they were like, you know what? I wish they'd done things differently. The toxic fans, we all know how they turned out. It's so funny. There's this... It makes me think of this one scene from South Park. Don't worry. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean up the language a bit. But they kind of do something like this with um, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Like, there's a flashback of all the boys exiting the theater. And like, they're like, oh my gosh, they ruined it. They ruined Indiana Jones. And like, oh my eyes, my eyes. And then of course Butter's like, Well, I thought it was pretty good. So, it's it's funny how that works out. And that's kind of like an accurate assessment of like how some people who didn't like... My dad always seemed to me like the one who was like, well, I liked it. He was kind of like Butters in that scenario. He didn't see what all the fuss was about. Now, when the sequel trilogies were announced, we got hyped up. And one of the reasons George Lucas says he sold it is like, well, everybody just told me how much they hated me and how much I ruined Star Wars. And it's like, you know what? That's fair. He didn't want to shoulder that responsibility anymore. So the sequel trilogies get announced when Disney buys Lucasfilm because they're not going to spend $4 billion and not make a Star Wars movie. And when stuff started happening, we were all psyched. J.J. Abrams was handling it. They had to convince him to. And, you know, John Williams was coming back. That was huge. And he was going to shoot it on film. And there was going to be practical effects. It sounded like a return to form for Star Wars. And then the movie gets released and... Generally, I feel like people liked it. There were some people who were like, you know, I, I think they leaned a bit too in the nostalgia. And some people were like, they killed Han. I mean, spoiler alert. And someone like, man, he's, Kylo Ren is like a moody teenager. And, but for the most part, I feel like we're off to a good start. There might be a few bumps in the road, but, you know, can't be any worse than the prequels. And then, of course, the sequels, the sequel, the rest of the sequel trilogy happens, and it proves to be just as divisive. And people felt like either they were capitulating too much to the Star Wars fans in one movie, or just capitulating to the general masses in one. It was really uneven. And even J.J. Abrams has said he wished he had gone into it with more of a plan. And I think that's fair because 
if you look at each movie individually, they're not bad, but as a whole, yeah, it does feel a bit messy. Now, one of the things, like, I think it's messy in the sense that each of those movies feels like they're part of a different trilogy. Like, it's like they took, it's like there were three different trilogies and they sort of snipped a piece from each of them and stitched them together. Like, um, like Force Awakens. Oh, shoot, I'm forgetting the names of it. Force Awakens feels very different from Last Jedi. And that feels very different from Rise of Skywalker. Like, I can't help but feel that when they started that movie, they didn't know that Palpatine was going to come back at the end. <coughs> Excuse me. I do think that the mistake was, and I know that they had to, it's a, it's bittersweet because if they hadn't made those movies when they did, they wouldn't have been able to include Carrie Fisher in them. But I think for the health of the franchise, I do think they should have waited on developing the property more. Like when Mar I think they saw what happened with Marvel and like, yeah, we got to kickstart this. I think probably what they should have done was waited at least three years of, you know, gestating and having talks and um, then make the movie and develop a plan. You know, a great page from the Kevin Feige playbook is um, when Sony, I think one of the things that ha happened is, I don't know if I'm recounting it correctly, but I heard that when Amazing Spider-Man 2 didn't do as well as it, as they hoped, Kevin Feige got a bunch of like his top brass and he they were talking about making an overture to Sony about like, hey, what if we make them a deal? And one of the things they did was they talked about what do we want to see done with the character if we had the opportunity to work with it and use it in the MCU. And they hashed that out until they had a vision and a plan. And I think that's what was lacking with the sequel trilogy. Now, in their defense, they came up with something pretty decent in such a rushed amount of time because I know that you get a lot of talented people and you don't give them a lot of time. It's hard to connect all the tissue seamlessly. Now, going back to Obi-Wan, I feel like, I think I said it before, I feel like they're going to more correctly do what they tried with Obi-Wan that they tried to do with Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi. I think my biggest issue with The Last Jedi was we didn't have an emotional connection to why Luke lost his faith and abandoned being a Jedi. 
Now, we're told a reason why. He sensed something powerful in Kylo Ren, something dark. And he thought about killing him, but then he was like, what am I doing? And then Kylo saw this, and so he turned to the dark side. So that felt kind of weak. We didn't get that emotional... It didn't have us wind up saying like, oh man, I'm not sure I would have acted that differently. And So I think what we needed to have was a scene where, you know, Luke was... So what we needed to establish was sort of Luke having a bit of a dogmatic view, not too different from what led to the fall of the Jedi. Now that might seem at odds with what was done in the original trilogy. But, you know, he's building a new order from the ground up. So, of course, there's going to be some rules and, like, some, you know, things that you don't question. Because, you know, in any organization, you make rules and you go by them. So, he would have a little bit of dogmatism. And according to that, he had a Jedi school, which he was trying to build up. So... So, here's my pitch for what would have made the origin of Kylo Ren better. So, let's say Luke is training Kylo Ren, and he's got a bunch of other Jedi that he's trying to teach, because he's trying to cre recreate the Jedi Order. He's a bit frustrated because, you know, that's a Herculean effort, and he's the, he's the only Jedi left, and he's got to train them. So... um. He's training Kylo Ren and or Ben Solo. I'm just going to say Kylo Ren because that flows off the tongue better. Anyway, he's training him and Kylo's got this friend who's another Jedi. And, you know, this dude means something to him. So then they go on a mission and that friend gets killed. And in his grief... Kylo taps into the dark side of the force briefly and utilizes like an insane level of power and that scares Luke and that's the thing that makes him think like oh my gosh like I haven't sensed so much and he tapped into the dark side and and that's what makes him think about killing him before he reflects and remembers how Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, had his moment of redemption. I feel like that would have made it drastically improved. But of course we didn't do that. And it baffles me that professionals that were handed the material didn't think of doing something like that. I will say this about the tie-in merchandise for Star Wars versus the tie-in stuff for all the things that are now considered non-canonical. So here's the thing with the tie-in stuff, the books, the comics, for the original movies. You know, in the movies, they would tell us stuff, and there'd be characters, and we'd be able to watch it on its own. And some people... But then the tie-in stuff was like, hey, well, here's some extra facts about them that may... You didn't have to know to enjoy the movies, but 
it can stand on its own and you can enjoy them. I think the problem with the sequel trilogy is you'll have a question about a character in the movie like, wait a minute, who's he? How did they get involved? Why are they important? And like, well, we're glad you asked that. Go buy this comic book or buy this book and, you know, you'll find out. You almost have to buy the supplementary material in order to get the movie. And it kind of feels like a cheat. Now, you could argue that they sort of did that with the Emperor in the first trilogy. But, you know, he was always a figure alluded to. And then we got to see him at the end. So, by his very nature, he was shrouded in mystery. And we got to see more of that in the prequel trilogy. Now, this, now the Star Wars TV shows seem to be doing much better than the movies are. And I think one of the reasons they're doing that is because they have people who have vision handling it. And it's a great lesson to... It's a great lesson to learn, and I hope they move forward with that. I think in anything, you have to have a vision and go after that. Because it makes such a difference. You have to have something to aim for, otherwise you're going to get lost. Well, anyway, that is my thought on Star Wars and what they can do. So, ooh, excuse me. So this has been another episode of the David Wells Experiment. Have an absolutely super day, and we will see you next time. Bye.